And so I think the other piece of this is you have to be willing to kind of be equitable. And many people might not know what that is. They might think, well, I can hire engineers anywhere, right? As a physician, you might think that. Um, and so let me just go hire a firm. It turns out you'll probably get really poor quality if you do that oftentimes. And so trying to understand what best practice is, what's normal, takes time. And so for this person who I, is a close friend of mine, I've been advising, it took his family member, who's a son, computer science engineer, to say, well, dad, you actually have to give equity to engineers. Like they're not just commodities, they're not. And so I think getting people to understand this, this type of what makes the standard of care, whether in medicine or best practice in business, is really important because most people don't want to give up equity or pay money. And I think that's really where teams get born is this collaboration, the feeling that everyone's in it together. Are you looking for opportunities to invest in passive real estate syndications? Join our exclusive community at FastFire Capital, where we're dedicated to bringing doctors and other high-income earners priority access to the best opportunities to invest in large multifamily and other types of commercial properties. Not only that, by being part of the community, you'll get exclusive access to webinars and Q&As where you'll be able to raise your passive investing IQ. To join our community, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash syndication. Again, that address is semiretiredmd.com forward slash syndication. When you daydream about your future, I'll bet it doesn't include you still working into your 60s and 70s. But unless you're actively taking steps to break the cycle of trading time for money, that's the future most of us face. Ignite Your Journey will lay out a roadmap to show you how to finally break that cycle and achieve true financial freedom. And it'll show you how to do it in just three to five years rather than the 20 or so it takes for traditional investments or saving in your retirement accounts. For more information, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash IYJ. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, a place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. All right, we're very excited and fortunate to have Nirav Shah joining us today. Hey, Nirav. Hi, Letty. Hey, Kenji. We are so excited to talk about your entrepreneurial journey, but the, for those who have never met you, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, kind of your job as a doc, and then how you ended up being an entrepreneur? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for having me on. So I am a stroke neurologist by training. Uh, I trained across the country, med school in Indiana, residency in Miami, fellowship in San Francisco, and then moved to Seattle, where I practiced stroke. And then shortly thereafter, just a few years of being a stroke attending or a hospitalist, stroke director, I left to start a tech company. And then three years after that, we sold the tech company to Carbon Health. And um, here we are, full cycle, thinking about what to do next. So how did that tech company come, up, come about? Was this something you had been interested in for a long time, kind of a passion you were doing on the side? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, 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 of course. So it was in a space called remote patient monitoring, which is monitoring people through wearable devices. I had always been interested in tech in general, right? I coded at one point, the late 90s, early 2000s, but never was a computer engineer by any any standard. Uh, and so throughout training, I thought that it would be a really good way for us to provide better care using these cheaper devices that were coming about. 
And so when I was a fellow, the Apple Watch came out 2015 that was FDA approved. And so that was when this kind of light bulb moment went off where it was a cool way to potentially bring this kind of ICU level care that we all have in the hospital home. And so it felt like this was going to be a big, big area, just like we have CTs and CAT scanners, and we use PACs to look at all this data. There's no way to look at all this wearable data at the time. And as a fellow, I was doing these guinea pig type projects for other wearable companies that were pending FDA approval. So I'd go into like an anesthesia lab, um, get desaturated for some pulse ox. And so I did this a few times to make a little bit of extra money. And so I already knew there were going to be other devices because I was I was seeing them and using them. And so it felt like to make this all work together, there had to be a common place, a common piece of software, just like faxes for imaging. And so we set out to build that. Initially, it was more of a research project. I don't think I had any specific vision around what a company might be, but I knew there were other things like it. There was Omada, which was helping with diabetes and coaching. There was Livongo, which went on to be more successful, at least to date and a few others. And so it seemed like this could be very valuable. And so I just started piloting it with our patients. None of those other that I mentioned could be used for patients. They're mainly for employees of companies like Home Depot. And so a lot of people said, well, you know, your stroke patients can't really use this. So when I landed in Seattle, I started testing it on my own stroke clinic, just a simple blood pressure cuff to start. And then over time, I got more advanced, more sophisticated cardiac monitoring, glucometry, and so on. And patients loved it. They didn't have to come back in especially after a stroke, from the hospital back to the clinic for blood pressure or diabetes care. And so it kind of made sense. And then lo and behold, Medicare started reimbursing for remote patient care or RPM, remote physiologic monitoring. And the business model made sense. We raised capital just through good luck and meeting the right people and just having the right conversations and good mentorship. And then it felt like the right time to leave and start building something. At the same time, probably like you guys, I was a little bit frustrated with uh, corporate hospital medicine and how hard it was to make changes. So tell us about going from that step where you started to have patients take it home and start monitoring. It, it seems to me that that's probably where a lot of people get stuck. They have a really great idea, seems to make sense. Maybe they have a little bit of piloting, but putting that into practice and then finding the right resources to actually make it into something, I've seen a lot of doctors get stuck there. So can you talk about how you were able to successfully do that? Yeah, I think for us, and you know, I had, I had a couple of co-founders. So Jorge, an internist and physician as well, he was testing in his nursing home. I was testing at these stroke patients. It was really just putting our our own skin in the game. I mean, we we spent our own money building something, which I know a lot, a lot of docs have done too. I've met a number of people who spent five, ten, many more thousands just trying something. But I think from there, the key difference might be that we knew people wanted it and needed it. And there was a business model eventually. It wasn't just a research project. Because initially I thought this, maybe this is just a big research project for value-based care. But as it became a business, that was the next big step is, well, this could help our star ratings at the hospital level with Medicare, and it could help with this. And so I think tying the business to the demand uh, and that people would actually pay for it was the key point. I've seen a lot of companies, I advise a number of startups, and often I find that a lot of people have a technology but it's not clear that there's real demand for it or that it's solving a real problem. It's really tricky, I think, for people who believe in something to kind of piece that apart and be specific and succinct about it. Can you talk to us about that process of getting funding? Um, because that's also, I think, uh, an area that probably intimidates yeah. a lot of people. People don't know what it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it intimidated us too. And there was no real good way to learn at that time. The best we had was YouTube. And so I'd watch it while documenting notes and 
there are a number of talks and there are a lot more now. There are courses now. Uh, there are a lot of accelerators like Y Combinator, Techstars. Those existed then as well, but they had some nice YouTube videos, which is really how I started learning just the vocabulary, right? For us as physicians, you know, we don't learn this typical business vocabulary and then startup venture private kind of vocabulary is even different. It's the fundraising terms, safes, priced rounds, and so on. And so that's where I started just to get the, the knowledge. And then really from there, it was just having the meetings and getting in front of investors, asking for introductions. And usually what I think most people find is they won't even get sent to the right people because they don't know, right? They don't know how to get into the right places to meet the right person. Even if they meet someone at a venture firm, maybe they're meeting like the junior associate <laughs> who's who's really not able to get a deal done because um, they're not a partner or something to that effect. And so I think over time, it was just effort, a lot of effort, a lot of um, failures. I think I talked to, over the course of three years, 180 different investors in my little kind of database uh, through the ups and downs of COVID. And so some of it is just figuring out how to make that right match between what someone wants to invest in, what risks they're comfortable with, and how to make it feel obvious um, while executing a plan so that they believe in you. Was there a, like a breakthrough moment or a key key relationship that helped you uh, be successful? No, I don't know that there was. I mean, I think we got lucky, to be honest, the first time, because the business model evolved right in front of us in 2018-19. And uh, we happened, I think it was eight, meeting number 18 that I'd had with of all angels or VCs, which is very unusual from what I now understand. But at the time, we thought that, well, man, this is really harsh. <laughs> we talked to 18 people and we haven't raised any money. But we happened to meet a great firm in Seattle that also had worked with other physicians. He had, the VC had also started a company in healthcare and sold it to Google. And so our first venture capitalist wrote a term sheet relatively quickly. And I was going to go meet others and we had other conversations, but I probably underestimated how hard it was because we got lucky to a degree. And we probably didn't understand how good the business model was. It was a high margin, recurring revenue business using reimbursement. So a lot of things kind of check the boxes for what VCs think about. And so we got lucky to a degree big problem, right? Hypertension, diabetes, stroke. These are really, really big problems too. So I think that's what helped us. Um, but from there, the second round that we tried to raise of financing was right during Q2 of COVID. And that was really tough because people weren't ready to invest over Zoom. Everybody wanted to have in-person meetings. I hadn't built those relationships because I hadn't anticipated that environment to be in all virtual. And, and so then it became really, really hard, which is what led to the next 100 plus meetings, right? To get the rest of the capital that we raised. And so that really just took momentum and conviction. And had I spent more time, perhaps building relationships earlier, perhaps it would have been easier. But how can you do everything at once, right? For every entrepreneur, it's just too tricky to balance relationship building, investors, business development, or otherwise, plus executing a plan. And so I don't, I don't know that we could have done much better, but that was a big dilemma. Tell me how you didn't give up. Oh, we, we almost tried to. So at one point during May of 2020, when COVID was pretty severe still in the first wave um, in Seattle specifically, and some of the hostels that you two know well, we said, look, if we can't raise money and we're about to run out, why don't we just go back and be doctors? We'll come back and try this again when COVID ends. We still believe in the idea. It's just not the right time. And so I think that's when a lot of people around us just said, keep going. Like this makes more sense now than it ever did. So don't give up. And we heard all these great stories and we're given this kind of great wisdom from the history of other people, but before us, basically every company goes just kind of sheer struggle. I think Peloton had $10,000 in the bank account at one point. Tesla's almost gone bankrupt a number of times, as people know. And so I think for, for anyone, it's 
it's such a tough journey. I think what's more unfortunate is how many things probably fail had, you know, that that didn't need to. And so that to me is the thing I, I think about a lot. But I think yeah, for I, us, that was it. If, I just want people to to hear like the struggle is part of the journey, right? It doesn't matter if you're Tesla, yeah. there are hard times for <laughs> sure, no matter yeah, where yeah. you are. Yeah. 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 I mean, even Airbnb, right? A company that that you guys know well and and love and admire in some ways and has inspired you. I mean, right during COVID, they gave away almost a billion. Their business went to zero. And it's hard. I think even for investors then, I mean, there was a point at which I was interested in buying Airbnb stock because I love the company conceptually and I understood it and I used it. And so I called people and I said, hey, would you be interested in splitting an investment with me in Airbnb? And everybody said, no. They said, I think hotels are going to be the way. This, this is in May of 2020, by the way. And had I, alongside a few other close friends, made that decision, I think at the IPO, we would have been up 14x. <laughs> and so clearly we were wrong. And that was after using it. And even with all the knowledge we have as, as clinicians, people understand that viruses come and go and there's epi- epidemiology and epidemics to this. We still made the wrong decision. So fear. Fear. Yeah. Fear, fear, fear. Yeah, exactly. So it's just hard. I mean, even knowing <laughs> and having, you know, I was half step away from making the, you know, that investment decision. And even then it was tough. So it's hard. I can't, I can only imagine what it was like for them and throughout their journey, which Brian and the team at Airbnb talked about a lot online. With that first round of funding, um, what did you do with that money and how did you know how to spend it? Yeah. So we had a good VC who, who understood how to run sales. And so TA from Pioneer Square Labs in Seattle taught us business to business sales, which is an important function for how to talk to physicians, offices, hospitals, not just the talking part, but actually the process, right? And the method behind this. Um, it's something that probably a lot of physicians are used to having someone come in and pay for lunch. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it than just eating their food, as, as we all know. But being on the other side of that, just thinking through how to get attention, how to be reasonable, how to not interrupt their clinic flow. That was something I, I think we all understand as physicians that most people may not, the average salesperson. And we had the credibility. And so we spent a good part of the capital on building a sales effort, some part of the capital on engineering, i.e. R&D, research and development. And then the rest was just operating the company, services, support, and just general oversight. So we didn't. We just spent, you know, we spent the money as leanly as possible to go as fast as possible and made decisions every day. And some of the hard decisions, you know, we we look back at, if you talk to my co-founders and I, we still question some of those decisions because we didn't know, right? You had so much money, you had to spend it. That's one of the things that makes this kind of venture model work is it's, you know, really a, a, a crucible. And if things can come out of that, clearly it's working, right? Because it's such a pressure cooker. This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Movement Mortgage. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. We've been working with Dan and his team for over eight years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. 
Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at srmd at movement.com to get a free consultation. And also let him know that you're part of the Semi-Retired MD community to get an exclusive discount on your next loan. Now back to the episode. talk about you had some co-founders can you talk about what made the partnership work and how you guys managed I'm sure you've had difficult times how did you guys manage that for people who are thinking about getting into partnerships maybe going and buying a property or starting a business with somebody yeah I think this is one of the harder questions um, just because team failure is one of the biggest reasons why companies fail other than timing perhaps especially the early stages of startups so for us, to a degree, it was luck. We spent a lot of time, these people. So Jorge and I have known each other for a decade through photography. So we met out in nature, outside of a clinical context or a business context. And then the co-founder we added, our CTO, Noah, he had moved from Boston. His wife was a cardiologist, so he had a commitment to the space. He grew up in Framingham. His mother worked on the Framingham Project, which is this large epidemiology project. So I think having someone who's mission-driven to the extent that you can is really important. So that that was important. And then someone who's willing to just work a lot, especially in the early days, and not give up. And so I think for someone like Noah and Jorge, I mean, everybody initially was working full-time jobs when it was a side project. And just the sheer amount of effort I think they all put in was part of this kind of testing phase to see if it could work. But then there were moments where, you know, I know that they probably wanted to give up, but they just, everyone kept coming back. And so just like any good relationship, partnership, or a founding team, people have to be willing to come back when things get tough. Otherwise, it'll just fall apart. And so I think, like many things, we probably wouldn't have made it to that set of venture meetings had it not been for those those testing periods and giving each other pretty direct, sometimes harsh feedback. So she, to me, as the one who's out fundraising, doing some of this, where everybody's got an opinion, right? But it's unclear what exactly is going to work because you don't get that much feedback. And it's not super rational. So I think that was important. And then as we developed the relationship, we got to know each other better. And even to this day, you know, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses to a degree. How did you let those strengths and weaknesses guide what jobs you did? And how did you kind of choose roles? Yeah, I think that that was, I think, just by luck to a degree. Um, Jorge didn't want to be CEO. He'd been a CEO before, so he wanted to be a medical officer. Noah was a technical person, so he was a natural fit for CTO. And so that left me to do everything else. Other than uh, persistence, any advice for new entrepreneurs who are thinking about following in your path? Yeah, I, I think the main thing is is what we we're talking about at the beginning, which is if you have an idea, test it, put some skin in the game. A lot of people are afraid, to, I think, to use their own resources that they have access to, to try something because they're nervous or they want other people to invest in an idea that they're not fully committed to, which I think is really tricky. Uh, I think us being fully committed to it investing our own money, willing to bootstrap it if we had to in the early days. I think I put in 50, 60,000 before we raised money. I think that showed investors that we were very committed because then then they knew, well, you've got time, you've got your own money involved. You really believe in this, obviously. I think to me, that's one of the things I don't see. I was talking to another physician that I was really interested in collaborating with on an AI topic, and I thought I could be helpful potentially. And they already make a large amount of money from other work that they do, but they didn't want to really put that capital alongside this project. And so it's been tough. They've had the same idea for a few years. It's a great idea, but they've lost engineers. 
because they didn't want to pay market. They didn't want to give up equity. And so I think the other piece of this is you have to be willing to kind of be equitable. And many people might not know what that is. They might think, well, I can hire engineers anywhere, right? As a physician, you might think that. Um, and so let me just go hire a firm. It turns out you'll probably get really poor quality if you do that oftentimes. And so trying to understand what best practice is, what's normal, takes time. And so for this person who I, is a close friend of mine, I've been advising, it took his family member, who's a son, computer science engineer, to say, well, dad, you actually have to give equity to engineers. Like they're not just commodities or not. And so I think getting people to understand this, this type of what makes the standard of care, whether in medicine or best practice in business is really important because most people don't want to give up equity or pay money. And I think that's really where teams get born is this collaboration, the feeling that everyone's in it together. How do you know that you're going to give equity to somebody and they're actually going to show up and do a really great job? Like, is are you building that into the contracts or how are you protecting the downside that you're hiring somebody who you don't have that 10-year relationship with, you're going to be giving them equity? How do you protect your downside? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So to To some part, it's a risk. You have to make it a bet based on what you know. But in general, we put people on a cliff. So maybe... You know, I've, I've had some of the worst interviews with people that ended up being the best employees and where the rest of the team thought, look, they come really highly referred. They just didn't interview with you really well. So even in that scenario, I would just give them a 90-day time period. Be a consultant, 90 days. If it works out, great. We'll see your work. We'll get to know you. Maybe it's not as stressful if somehow I'm intimidating. And then beyond that, it was putting people on a cliff on the equity piece. So maybe you cliff after a year and then invest thereafter. That alone protects everybody. But you're right. So, I mean, the same position, this conversation I'm thinking about, they wanted to have a clawback if that person left. How do I get that equity back? Well, you don't. That's just, that was part of the deal. So just like you pay a salary, you have to give some up. And so in many cases, you know, we would start more modestly and try to commit to giving more. And, and in general, that was feasible, especially when we hit certain milestones. And we'd put it on paper on day one. So it's very obvious what could happen. So for somebody getting started, or or let's say that they have a, a an idea that they have bootstrapped to a certain point, I mean, is there a point at which you think everybody should go then raise money, or do you think that there are times when people should continue to bootstrap? Oh, I, yeah, I think everyone. There there are many ways to success, and it just depends on goals. I think most businesses should probably be bootstrapped. You know, I don't think we understood all the dynamics between venture and non-venture. But probably most things should be bootstrapped in general. Or there are other ways of financing companies, maybe debt, um, maybe creative partnerships with the right partners, you know, B2B partners. And in many cases, that can be a good brand lift. For venture, it's very unique. I mean, you have to have a really, really big potential outcome, which most people think they can come up with, especially in healthcare. You can point at any problem, say sleep apnea, that's 30 million people, and this is that many people. And so that that doesn't make it a big market per se. It just has to be one you can go access and build a company in. So I would say for many of these people, just launch and just start. I think when it comes time to fundraise, you know, you can talk to VCs, but in general, giving up a piece of your company is something I would invite. generally encourage people to try to avoid, unless there's a reason why they want to have people alongside, right? Whether it's good partners that are strategic, that are value add, or just people you want to have around you. In general, that, that would be the way I'd approach it. So we also know you are investing in real estate. So can you talk a little bit about how that fit into everything of your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, it was sort of an accident. Uh, I just happened to be 
you know, in the right places at the right time. So in Miami in 2011, I was able to get a 0% down loan on a condo, which isn't insane when you think about it. Um, and I was actively told by the broker, the realtor who was supposed to be telling me to buy the place, that it was a terrible location. It was 10 blocks from the American Airlines Arena. It had a view uh, where the Miami Heat plays. It had a view of the ocean. <laughs> and it was large. It was like, you know, close to the Bacardi headquarters. This area is now known as Edgewater in Miami. At the time, people were calling it different things. And so it's very, very popular. It was two miles from the hospital. And so we got this great foreclosure on a on an, a condo. It was a two-bedroom, three-bedroom rather, two-bath. And so I had a roommate, which made it work for the loan. And so that was kind of luck one. When we when it was time to sell as I'd moved to the West Coast, um, we made money there. I used that to buy a quadplex. I was like, I can't afford a house in Seattle. I skipped San Francisco entirely and just waited. And so using the proceeds from that, we happened to buy a quadplex. Um, I lived there with my girlfriend at the time, who then became my wife. We moved out of that. That that was fortunate. And so each one of these happened to be a little bit of luck. I think now coming full cycle as rates have risen, prices are dropping, I'm doubling down because it, it seems like now I, I feel like I understand what was happening. I just didn't know it at the time. And I got definitely got lucky. And and made good decisions along the way, right? Each of these cash flowed. They're just kind of basic things that you learn about real estate. Each of them cash flowed. All of them had good tax advantages. And all of them, you know, if I didn't get the price I wanted, I wouldn't have sold because I could just hold them. Yep, because they cash flow. And I love that yeah, you yeah, house hacked. Yeah. I just mm. want people to hear yeah, when, yeah. when people talk about their house hacking experience. <laughs> people think it's so wild that a doctor would consider house hacking. We house hacked as well in a duplex right on the shoreline, Seattle yeah. area. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I love that that you did that too. And I know you have some crazy real estate stories, but we should probably wrap up because we told so many cool entrepreneurial pearls for people. We'll have to talk about real estate some other time. <laughs> That's great. Thanks. All right. So two questions we ask everyone. Uh, what is your definition of wealthy? Yeah. So for me, I think it's having time to spend with those that you love and care about. Uh, I think a lot of people have talked about something to this effect, but that that's the whole point. You know, you can't take this money with you. So you might as well use it to buy time, right? And get leverage on your time and then be able to spend it with those that you want. Awesome. What is one mindset, habit, or strategy that separates someone who is wealthy versus someone who is not? Yeah, in my mind, this is what I think of as sort of short-term greed and long-term greed. And so there are a lot of people who want something today um, in some form or fashion, and that's okay. That might be someone you're trying to hire who really needs a salary to pay the bills. And there's some people who are long-term greedy. And to me, the really wealthy people are long-term greedy. They think on longer time horizons. Um, They're willing to make longer decisions that can compound over years. And so to me, that's a big part of those who are the wealthiest, right? Those we're able to think beyond just the basics of a short term. I need to make the most I can today that end up treating things like a transaction, whether it's relationships, their employee, employer kind of status and more. Really cool. Yeah, that is good. Big one. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, can you tell you tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah. So LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a great place to find me. And then I'm happy to reach uh, out and talk to anyone on DMs. I'm also at Twitter, NeuroNeurev, as a neurology. And so I'll tweet tweet at me and I'll tweet back or talk to you on LinkedIn. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Bye.
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.